When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. When Samson inveigled his way into the Temple of Dagon, he used his superhuman strength to pull the whole thing down. He bowed himself with all his might, according to the Book of Judges, killing everyone inside and himself into the bargain. Remind you of anything? Is Samson to be categorized as a purveyor of awesome religious terror? A sort of proto-suicide bomber? Be that as it may, neither the Bible nor the Quran is short of disturbing calls to arms. Here's Rick Sofer of the Montefiore Endowment speaking with notable honesty on the Naked Reflections show Dialogue, discussing the Torah and the Quran. Well, I came to appreciate how much violence there was in the Torah by looking at the Quran first. I'd heard about all these violent verses in the Quran, such as the one, slay the idolaters wherever you find them, that was used by Osama bin Laden when he launched his campaign against the West. But uh, I then went to the Torah and found verses which were much more violent. There's one where Moses after he's seen the children of Israel misbehaving with idolatry at the golden calf episode, he takes everybody, he says, everyone who's on the Lord's side, stand with me. And then invoking an instruction with God, he tells them to take their sword and who's ever on the other side, the non-believers, they should be killed, even if it's their brother or their neighbor or their close relative. So that is a much more violent verse than the, anything in the Quran. Terrorism is our subject this week, and joining me to discuss it is Alex Carlyle, Lord Carlyle of Berryu. He's also director of Lloyd's Enforcement Board in London. But more to the point for the purposes of this discussion, he was appointed the first independent reviewer of terrorist legislation on the 11th of September 2001. These days, amongst other things, he's a trustee of the Wolf Institute. Joining Alex is Hadia Massey, a counter-terrorism expert who's much in demand and has done valuable research on how women get trapped into terrorist activity. She's founder of Groundswell Project, an organization dedicated to countering extremism through the community, and is also chairwoman of the Counter-Terrorism Board at the Metropolitan Police. Welcome both. Alex, since we can all easily find and read violent texts in the Bible, the Quran, and the sacred scriptures of nearly every religion, couldn't these be construed as the roots of terrorism? Well, I'm an enthusiast, amongst other things, Ed, of Greek mythology. 
And if you look at Greek mythology, if you look at almost every religion other than Buddhism, possibly, you find what could be construed as terrorism. So I'm going to acquit the theologians, the writers of the scriptures, of being responsible for terrorism. What I do think is true is that some roots of terrorism are in religion, but they're in the politics of religion. They're often in the practitioners of outrageous heresies, which are um, placed under the headline of religion. And indeed, that applies to much of the so-called Islamist terrorism that occurs at the present time. So whilst religion is a feature, I think it's used more as an excuse than as a reason. Let's get into this question of definition, Hadia, because there is an issue, isn't it? Someone's terrorist is someone else's freedom fighter? Yes, it is obviously a complex subject matter, and I can't believe I'm being asked to define it. But what I can say what it means to me is when you're terrorising a group of people for their gender, for their race, for their ethnicity, and their they're people who are, are helpless. So terrorists go after helpless people, in my view. And there is no justification around that at all. It's not soldier to soldier, you know, fighting. It is when a group of people have decided via their ideology, for whatever reason, to attack and to cause mayhem and chaos among a people and have decided to use an excuse of religion or whatever it may be to unleash terror upon people who are defenseless. Asymmetry does seem to be at the heart of a great deal of this. It also goes into a grey area as well, because um, there's a sense that you can punch up, you just can't punch down. Is that something that concerns you? Yes, it does. But it is definitive to terrorism that small groups which are not a government, which are not prepared to participate in the normal ways in which governments are formed, inevitably punch up uh, because they generally start from small beginnings. And in our modern era, and I'm now talking about artificial intelligence, uh, where we live in a global virtual village, it's much easier for people to punch off up because they can form alliances with people of like mind all over the world. No, I absolutely agree that the nature of, of things nowadays, online terrorism is a huge issue. I'd say the people out of the hundreds of people that I've mentored and helped to de-radicalise in inverted commas were introduced to it via online means. You particularly focus, as I said in the introduction, on the way women have been exploited by terrorist activity. What have you discovered? The idea of women being exploited is a bit inaccurate in a way. It can, it can be misconstrued because men and women can be exploited equally. I want to put that straight. And it's not about the gender being exploited. It's the vulnerabilities that are exploited. And that's what terror organisations do. They exploit vulnerability. In particular, it has been shown that women have been more vulnerable in, in occasions, especially if they've been younger individuals, quite a naive age, um, uh, women who were abducted by their husbands to join ISIS without their knowing, you know, all of these kind of areas that I've seen, but also women being quite proactive in promoting terror ideologies. So... I guess it's that issue around 
not labeling oh women are the poor women that get exploited it's the vulnerabilities point taken um but when you talk about vulnerability as being key to exploitation uh, rather than gender what work do you do to help if you look at how terror organizations work and they're going into vulnerable areas so they're working with young people naive people uh, individuals uh, people with mental health issues i know as well people feeling quite disenfranchised both far right organizations and islamist organizations operate in the same way um from an islamist perspective as well they have converts to islam which they um, very much try to manipulate so if if they are going and attacking or going into the space of vulnerability that's where we work so we work with young people equipping them with the ability to challenge something that they didn't know existed online uh, safeguarding um people with mental health issues as well they have somewhere to go to someone to speak to converts to islam have you know a safe space so it's like getting there before they do equipping them with a nurturing environment because again terror organizations have a, a very good ability to lure people in saying i'll be your friend you know um i'll support you when no one else cares and that it's all you know a pack of lies and grooming in order to meet their agenda so what is the equivalent that we need to do as a society we need to be present for our young people we need to have systems in place where you know that vulnerability is addressed so groundswell project does that you know there are organizations on the ground that don't know much about terrorism and ex- extremism but organizations like us can can go in and equip them with the ability to challenge it and be very specific and have have a good method of doing so you know it's not just going in and and saying hey i'm going to talk about terrorism extremism being very methodical in the way that we approach this alex what complementary approach might you take uh, as a as a parliamentarian to this practical work that hadia's outlined can i go back a stage and say that I don't think there's any neurological evidence that women are less exploitable than men. I think there may be societal evidence that shows that if say a young woman is living in a very closed community, she's likely to have less access to the outside world than her men. I mean, for example, her husband may well be going to watch the local football team. She probably won't. So I think those are the movers that make women sometimes more exploitable. Exploitation is a major part of radicalization. There is nowhere where this is more evident than in the prisons. Prison is one of the most boring places to be on earth. There's not much to do and young men in prison go and do whatever they can and there is plenty of evidence some of which came out in the Usman Khan inquest the fishmonger's hall inquest of prison being a place where prisoners who are not in prison for terrorism offences can be exploited and and radicalized so developing from that sort of theme i think the way in which we go out and try and deal with these exploitative circumstances is by and i think i'm saying the same as hadia here really giving them better opportunities in life making life seem more appealing i can think of examples from prevent which i couldn't refer to by name in which young men were for example persuaded that because they were good at sport they might have a rather better time playing sport 
than being radicalized. And so it proved to be successfully in some of these cases. That's a very good thing. But I think it's extraordinarily difficult, and this is the real challenge, particularly in the prisons, to differentiate between people who are genuinely capable of being persuaded or moved out of extremism and those who wish themselves to exploit the system so they can commit more serious and more damaging crimes by successfully persuading people that they're de-radicalized when they aren't. And Osman Khan is an example of that. I 100% agree that it has to be a whole range of people that are assessing these individuals because you can't just come from an academic background and say, oh, it's like, you know, you're a psychologist. In my view, the most important people to have around to do this assessment are those people who have been formers and know those subtleties that no one else will be able to pick up. No academic, no textbook is going to teach you that. I'm saying myself, as an example, that I, I, I'd be able to pick up something that probably other people who are in the academic space, medical space, wouldn't be able to pick up. A poacher term gamekeeper. Exactly. There's this new phenomenon called incel. What is it, Hadir, and what are you doing about it? I'm not the exact expert, but we have experts on our team who are looking closely at incel and uh, delivering training to police and communities around this problem. Um, we have detected that it is a growing issue, and if we do not give it the attention it needs, it could you know, evolve into something a lot bigger than we're anticipating. So I think we need to keep an eye on what this is and how it's growing. It's already cost lives. It is a form of terrorism, in my view, because it's against its misogynistic ideology and um, needs to be addressed. Can you offer any examples, specific examples, Hadir, and, and please say if you if you can't, of the work where you have brought somebody out of a place of radicalization and extremism? Yeah, they have been quite successful. And as a result of that success, it's given me hope that we can actually do this on a larger scale. And like Alex was saying, it's sometimes just as basic and as simple as giving an alternative, like making something more exciting for a young person when they're at their lowest, at their most vulnerable state in their life and to give them hope because it's the hope that the terror organizations give these individuals so are we saying that we can't give hope and so when you've got various individuals I really try to understand what they need you know their inner selves what is it that's troubling them and 99% of the time you have the listening ear the person who cares the person who wants to help them they will veer towards them. And if I'm that person in that instant, why don't we try doing X, Y, Z in the community? You're interested in, there's one kid that was interested in BMX biking, like football, and just distracting them and saying there, there are things in this world and in your environment, in your community that you can get engaged in. And you're not an outsider and you're actually using a passion of yours to do something not dangerous and positive. And yeah, they they got into BMX biking and help their other friends to get involved. It's just literally nurturing. And that's why women have a more nurturing tendency. And, and that's why it's worked with the de-radicalization stuff, because we don't go in there with, you know, a judgmental finger point. Well, I don't anyway, um, attitude. I want to know 
about that individual, take away all the labels, who are you as a person, and really try to encourage and support them into something else. And with my, you know, my background, I was involved with an extremist group for 10 years. I can come from a space where I can say, I get what you're saying. I understand why you've got these grievances, but this is not the way forward. And um, so, yeah, I think on a larger scale, community organizations that are working with youth need that support. It, they're, the, they're the actual cure for me for, for, for extremism and terrorism. Alex, that sounds eminently sensible, doesn't it? It is very sensible, and it, it makes me want to add this point, that I think the role of women in uh, the de-radicalization of the men folk, particularly in their families, could not be more important. Muslim communities haven't always been very good at giving uh, women the opportunity to be leaders in their communities. Indeed, it's often the case that neither women nor younger men, however brilliant, become the leaders in those communities. And I think we can do a great deal through various very light touch, soft power programs to persuade communities that this country is well worth living in, um, that uh, there are much better things to do than end up in prison for 25 years for a terrorism offence, and to be part of the community rather than opposed to it. And mostly that works. We're talking about a very, very, very tiny minority unfortunately, of sometimes very dangerous people who uh, bring the whole edifice clattering down upon us. I want to add, if I may, I set up an Islamic forum in in the area that I live with Shia, Sunni, Ismaili, various other sections of the Islamic community. And everyone was like, are you crazy? Like, that's not going to work. But I was like, no, I'm doing this with no agenda apart from just to bring these people together like you said, a soft approach, do something positive for them so they, they you win their trust, that you're there to help them and to improve their lives and their community. And, you know, it's a slow process, but it can be done. And as a woman, I knew that, you know, maybe I would get some backlash, but they've all been so accommodating when they've seen that actually that I can get results because I'm connected with various organisations and, and it can work that way. So um, there is, again, hope. We talk about hope a lot. <laughs> I just wanted to pick up on one thing, Hadir. It's a term that Alex used and something that I've always felt uncomfortable with, although academically it's a perfectly acceptable term, which is Islamism and Islamist. And there aren't many faith traditions where the actual noun of the particular religion is used in that sort of way. There's not a Christianist or a Judaist. Do you see what I mean? But yet it's a term that's part of daily speech or a speech about this sort of thing. But it's problematic because, it, in my view, it associates the whole faith with extremism. I wonder if you could comment on that. Yes. As chair of the Counterterrorism Advisory Board, I've tried to change the term that we use. And it should be Al-Qaeda-inspired or ISIS-inspired. Like, call it what it is so that you don't use an entire religion and brand, you know, the entire religion with terrorism. Let's take a break. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. I'm discussing terrorism with Alex Carlyle and Hadia Massey. Do you remember it was about 10 years ago when any bottle, shampoo, shower gel, Coca-Cola, became a problem when you checked in at the airport? It was because someone had figured out that explosives could be effectively hidden in them, mixed in with the liquids. Practical science came to the rescue. 
Speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast, Exploding Explosives, Pavel Matushek described the technique of Raman spectroscopy developed at the Rutherford Laboratory to check out if liquids were safe. If we have a mixture, you would see the, the content of a solvent and solute very clearly. So that's, that's what we are doing. And they are comparing those fingerprints against the library, which holds uh, prohibited substances, which could be explosives. And uh, if explosive is found, we sound an alarm. The unique feature of this technique is that we reach extremely low false alarm rates. Would it beat sniffer dogs? I'd like to move on to the question of state terrorism. Alex, you've worked with, like a deer, with countries around the world. What strategies have you applied? Well, I don't believe that there is such a thing as state terrorism because that is symmetrical. And once a state starts sponsoring terrorism, then that in reality is an act of war and needs to be dealt with through normal international channels. So that if, for example, a new government in Afghanistan, even if recognized as inevitably it will be, uh, starts to take part in the sponsoring of terrorism around the world, then that government will be a legitimate target for very severe sanctions and for some acts of warlike violence, particularly in the modern era, the use of very powerful drones and the like. Hadia, you have some experience in this area? Not so much, but obviously seeing the situation unfold in Syria and watching you know, international governments stay a bit silent on those issues. And as a result of that silence and inertia, we, we, we find ourselves in this situation. And I'm not really one to comment particularly, but what I can comment are on the, the aftermath of all of this, like watching, you know, Syrian refugees, the whole crisis unfold, exploitation of, of the vacuum that it's created and how ISIS jumped in. And as a result, like, it's come close to home when I was working with the, the girls in Bethnal Green. It's close to my heart when I see young girls that have lost their lives for what? For no reason, because a political situation wasn't solved. And that was the responsibility of international governments to step in and to do what they're paid to do. What they're supposed to do is protect the people and the civilians, and they weren't protected. So, yeah, I think I'm more witness of what's happened when issues get out of hand when state terrorism and, and, and all of these acts go unchallenged or ignored, the, at the end of the day, innocent people suffer. And that's what I've been working on and with. So you're very much working with, with individuals and the consequences of these actions, it sounds like. And, and Alex, you quite often work with individual countries. I mean, some countries tend to speak to everybody. You mentioned Qatar. Um, it has a reputation of speaking to everybody, some of whom we like and some of whom we really don't like. How do you manage that? What Qatar has done is provide a safe space in Doha where um, organisations that would be very unwelcome in other parts of the world can sit down and talk to one another. It's a rich country. They provide good space for these conversations to take place. Sometimes it succeeds, sometimes it does not, but it's always very revealing. I think that's an entirely legitimate approach for them to take. And indeed, my own view is that the situation would be even worse um, than the Afghanistan situation at the moment if there had not been that kind of conversation in Qatar, because a lot of people who have been able to leave Afghanistan would not 
have been able to leave Afghanistan. So there is room for honest brokers in the world. Um, Sweden has a great reputation for being an honest broker. Norway was the honest broker in the war, in the civil war of the Tamil Tigers um, in Sri Lanka. There are many examples, and this is an entirely legitimate process. It's risky for the country concerned because they're always going to be criticized by countries and governments and organizations intrinsically hostile to what they're doing. But I don't think we should criticize them for doing it. Another area, controversial area, of course, is, is Israel-Palestine and the different terms that are used for the actions, behaviors of uh, Israeli settlers, for example. Now, Hadiyah, I know you've been working with Bereaved Families Forum, which is based in Israel and Palestine. Do you have to tackle those sorts of issues? Yes, we've actually just set up Groundswell Middle East. So a good friend of mine has gone to Israel and settled in one of the settlement areas, actually, where his family are. And we are going to be working with the various peace organizations that are out there. There's so much going on on the ground there that it's, for me, a crying shame that we don't know about it. We only hear the negative all the time. And that's one of the things that Groundswell does. It We shine a light on the positive that no one really hears. But like it's it needs to be heard. In fact, it, it must be heard if we're trying to challenge this properly. And so, yeah, we're working with grassroots organizations out there. And the idea is that we um, connect the positive work that's going out there to people in the UK. So there is uh, some balance because we only, again, hear the negative stuff. So Groundswell Project's working with another organization called Roots. Again, like working with Palestinians and Israeli settlers. And just getting a different perspective, I think it makes people kind of stop and think a little bit because they never hear that perspective. And it does need to be embraced and understood. So in a way, you're talking about getting across the good news, if you like, of the work that's being done. And, and Alex, you mentioned Prevent before, um, before the, the, the interval. Um, and yet Prevent seems to have failed to get across any good news. It's had an enormous amount of criticism. Um, you know it very well. How would you evaluate it? Well, the first thing I would say is about the criticism. I think that Prevent has been subjected to a successful campaign of quite outrageously unfair criticism um, by various organizations who uh, regard it as fundamentally offensive to civil liberties for some reason that one should try and help people not to become terrorists and be radicalized. Um, Prevent has its flaws, and had I completed the review, which is currently about to be completed, I understand, by William Shawcross, I would have suggested particularly significant organizational changes to Prevent. But I think it's, a, it's basically a very good and successful scheme. Let me give you just one little example. I was in a city, which I won't name, in the north of England with a number of uh, mature men who happened to be Muslims who lived and, and worked in their own communities and were prevent program organizers in the voluntary sector. So I said to them in a leading sort of way, well, Prevent's completely disreputable and achieves nothing and it should, should not be named Prevent. And the answer I got was, no, you're quite wrong. We think that Prevent 
does what it says on the tin. When people say to us in our community, what are you doing? Our reply is, we're preventing violent extremism. We're preventing terrorism. And people say, oh, that's a good thing to do, as it were. So I think there is a lot of support for prevent in Muslim communities. Hadia, do you have a view on prevent? Yep, I do. I've been working with prevent for almost 15 years now. And if you look at the people who actually are hating on prevent, it's mainly the extremist groups like Cage. And, you know, they're, they're the ones that are pushing purposefully and successfully a negative opinion of prevent because it's threatening to them. It's threatening to oust their, them out. So you've got to look at where the negative um, rhetoric is coming from prevent it coming from, from the people who are threatened by prevent. So, and then we have areas, uh, you know, working in a lot of Muslim communities, there is this fear in them that, look, one side, I do not want my child going to join a terrorist organization or extremist organization, but then I don't want to tarnish my community either. So they feel this kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place in that sense. They, they, they want the help, but they don't want the stigma. Um, how do you sensitively approach that issue? And you're like, look, we can work together on this. No one's going to point any fingers. These kids, again, I keep going back to, you know, it's harrowing to, for me to know that those girls are dead in ISIS. That's the, that's the ultimate thing that we're trying to prevent and massive acts of terror as well. But, you know, the, the, the Muslim community do want help. They do want to protect their children. And they are interested. They just don't want the stigma. But done sensitively, we can work together and, and resolve those issues. And like you said, you know, we're doing a good thing. We want to prevent terror in all forms. And, and that's with the far right stuff as well. Like young boys are massively going down that route too. So it's not like, it's not up to one community to solve this problem. Um, if you kind of open it up, like it's a whole society's issue, the stigma then disappears as well. So it's like, we're all in it together. We need to challenge this, you know, collectively. It's not just Muslims that are cause of this. It's it's a lot of factors. And we are getting to a space where we are advancing in the understanding of prevent as well. It's not it's not like way back where it's just against Muslims. It's become a lot broader and people are starting to get it and, and appreciate the education from it too. And I know if I wasn't part of prevent, I wouldn't have been able to, to help people come away from extremism. So thanks to prevent, I was able to do that. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks to my guests, Alex Carlyle and Hadia Massey. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? We're approaching our 100th edition in the autumn, and they're all available for listening. You may also want to check out our other podcasts or podcasts from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with some more guests. <laughs>